morning. It is good to be with you this morning. We are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Galatians, and our passage today is Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Well, today marks an anniversary of a significant historical event. It was on October 31st of 1517 that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. That day proved to be a pivotal day in church history and world history. Luther was an Augustinian monk who, of course, became the center of a great controversy known as the Protestant Reformation after his 95 theses were copied and distributed throughout Europe. He wrote his 95 Theses as a protest against the Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences, which promised remission from punishment for one's sins. Pope Leo had authorized the selling of indulgences in Germany with about half of the proceeds going to fund St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Johann Tietzel, who was a Dominican monk and a popular preacher, was named the commissioner of indulgences for Germany, and he went through Germany teaching that purchasing indulgences was a means of releasing someone from purgatory. There was a rhyme that was attributed to him that went, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther, along with many other Germans, took exception to the practice of selling indulgences, as well as the theology used to support the practice. And so when he posted his, 90, uh, his 95 theses on the door of the church, which functioned like a community bulletin board, he most likely had no idea that his action would trigger the events that unfolded in the coming years. Nevertheless, through the process of the Protestant Reformation, Luther exerted tremendous influence during his lifetime, as well as in the centuries that have followed. And one of Luther's most notable teachings was on the doctrine of justification by faith. The doctrine of justification answers the question, how does a sinner become just in the eyes of a holy God? I want to share a helpful definition of the doctrine of justification by Robert Rothwell, who writes... Justification, God's declaration that we are not guilty, forgiven of sin, and righteous in his sight, comes because through our faith alone the Father imputes or reckons to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are declared just and righteous in the eyes of of God, not because of our obedience, not because of our ability to do the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of his righteousness, which is credited to us. Now, before Luther understood this, he hated the idea of God's righteousness. He felt as though God's righteousness was a threat to him because no matter how hard he tried, he could not confess enough sin or do enough good works to convince himself that he was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. He was tortured by the fact that as a sinner, he could not live up to the righteous standards of God. All of that changed, however, when he came to understand that he was justified by faith 
and not by works of the law. Listen to what he said. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. The book of Galatians had a profound impact on Luther and his understanding on justification. In his commentary on Galatians, he wrote, Now the true gospel has it that we are justified by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. The false gospel has it that we are justified by faith, but not without the deeds of the law. The false apostles preached a conditional gospel. They admit that faith is the foundation of salvation, but they add the conditional clause that faith can save only when it is furnished with good works. This is wrong. The true gospel declares that good works are the embellishment of faith, but that faith itself is the gift and work of God in our hearts. Faith is able to justify because it apprehends Christ, the Redeemer. Human reason can think only in terms of the law. It mumbles, this I have done, this I have not done. But faith looks to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given into death for the sins of the whole world. To turn one's eyes away from Jesus means to turn them to the law. True faith lays hold of Christ and leans on him alone. Well, October 31st of 1517 was a pivotal day in church history. And our passage this morning records a much earlier pivotal day in church history. The pivotal moment recounted by Paul in Galatians 2 involved a private meeting in Jerusalem that had huge implications for the church. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I encourage you to follow along. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles 
and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In chapter 1, Paul shared about his conversion and what took place after his conversion so that the Christians in Galatia would know that he received the gospel of Jesus Christ independently of any man. Paul described how Jesus Christ appeared to him. It was Jesus who appeared to him. It was Jesus who saved him and called him and commissioned him to be an apostle. And it was Jesus who revealed the message of the gospel to him. Paul had authority to preach the true gospel message because Jesus himself commissioned him and because Jesus himself gave him the gospel message. After his conversion, he spent three years in Arabia, and only after three years did he visit Jerusalem. He first, his first visit was very short, lasting only 15 days, and he only saw Peter and James. After that, he spent many years in the far north. His point was that the gospel was not taught to him by any man. It was not a tradition that had been passed down to him. He had not gone to Jerusalem just so that the uh, apostles there could teach him the message and then he could go and do their bidding. No, his point was that he received the gospel independently of any man directly by revelation from Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of our passage, he continued his story as he said that after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem again. It was likely 14 years after his conversion, and therefore it was likely 11 years after his first visit to Jerusalem. And he said the reason he went back to Jerusalem was because of a revelation he received. He did not describe the revelation, but he clarified that while in Jerusalem, he met privately with the apostles in order to lay out the gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jewish people. Paul had been primarily preaching the gospel to non-Jewish people. He had been preaching to them that they could be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. He taught them that they did not need to become like Jews in order to be saved and belong to the people of God. However, there were other teachers who came behind Paul and taught Gentile believers that they did need to live like Jews in order to be truly Christian. The Greek word that is translated live like Jews in Galatians chapter 2 verse 14 is where we get the term Judaizer. The Judaizers taught that it was necessary to customarily practice Jewish patterns of behavior, to live as a Jew, to practice Judaism. The most significant example of this was in regard to circumcision. For example, in Acts 15, 1, we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Obviously, Paul was profoundly disturbed by those who were teaching such things, as this teaching undercut the truth of the gospel and caused a great deal of confusion and consternation among the Gentile believers. The false teaching threatened the health of the churches and the advance of the gospel. So Paul wanted to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. He was not concerned that he was running in vain in the sense that he thought, he was mistaken in what he was preaching. 
It's not as though he thought, well, maybe I'm the one who got this wrong, and therefore all my work has been in vain because I've been preaching the wrong message. That was not his concern. And we know that was not his concern because he received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, who appeared to him. But he was concerned with the possibility that the apostles in Jerusalem would not refute the false teaching of the Judaizers. He wanted to clearly lay out the gospel he had been preaching to make sure that they affirmed the message and were not contradicting it in any way. If they were contradicting him, if they were affirming the teaching of the Judaizers, then his ministry would be sabotaged. The disciples he made would be led astray. This was his concern when he went to Jerusalem, and this was his concern for the Galatians when he wrote this letter. In Galatians 1.6, he wrote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He was astonished, dismayed, troubled by the fact that they were deserting the grace of Christ and were turning to another gospel that added works of the law. He was deeply troubled that they were turning away from the gospel, turning away from the grace of Christ and the truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and instead were believing a false gospel. Martin Luther said, the article of justification is fragile. Not in itself, of course, but in us. I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. That's what was happening in those churches throughout Galatia. They were forfeiting the joy of the gospel because they were abandoning the doctrine of justification by faith and were adding to it works of the law. The doctrine is fragile because of how easily it is for us to turn away from believing this glorious truth. He wanted to make sure that he was not running in vain by confirming that James, Peter, and John, pillars in the church, were preaching the same gospel he was preaching. He wanted to make sure they were not going to undercut his ministry by teaching Gentiles that they had to live like Jews in order to be Christians. He wanted to make sure that they were not going to teach that a person could not be saved unless they were circumcised. This meeting between Paul, Peter, James, and John was a pivotal moment in church history. For Paul, nothing less than the truth of the gospel was at stake. And it was almost certainly the case that the apostles in Jerusalem were experiencing tremendous pressure from influential Judaizers. Paul references false brothers who were brought in. In Jerusalem, there were those who claimed to be brothers in Christ, but were not actually brothers in Christ. He said they slipped in to spy out the freedom we have in Christ, Jesus, so that they might bring us back into slavery. Paul unpacks the meaning of freedom in Christ in greater detail as the letter unfolds. For example, in chapter 5, verse 1, he said, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we receive the freedom from our sins, the guilt of our sins, and the punishment for our sins. We are completely and utterly free. We are saved 
by grace through faith. It does not depend upon us and our ability to obey, to do the works of the law. It does not depend on us. We have freedom because it all depends on Christ. The false brothers were working to rob them of that freedom that is in Jesus. And trying to bring them back into slavery. Trying to take that freedom that they are totally free in Jesus Christ. And trying to say, no, 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 no. You have to also do the works of the law. Trying to rob that freedom. Bring them back into slavery. And it was not incidental that Paul brought Titus along with him. Titus was a test case. He was an example of the fruit of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Titus was not Jewish. He was a Greek, and he was not circumcised. How would he be received? Even though he was not a Jew and was not living like a Jew, would the Jewish apostles fully embrace him as a brother in Christ? The result of that meeting had tremendous implications for the church. Not only was the gospel at stake, but so too was the mission. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave the apostles their mission. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This mission that he gave them was to span the globe He wanted them to take the gospel to all people groups, to all different cultures around the world. Would the mission require the apostles to make disciples of all nations by making people of all nations live like Jews? Well, the happy result of the private meeting in Jerusalem was that Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem did not yield or submit to the false teachers it would have been easy for them to just try to appease those who were putting pressure on them it would have been easy for them to say you know what just just get circumcised not a big deal just do it then we can get them off our backs then maybe they'll leave us alone it would have been easy for them to acquiesce but they did not they did not yield because the truth of the gospel needed to be preserved They did not yield because they wanted there to be no confusion regarding how a person is saved. They wanted there to be no confusion regarding who belongs to the people of God. He went on to say that the leaders in Jerusalem added nothing to his gospel. He referred to them as those who seemed influential several times. He really wanted to make the point that he was not impressed with the fact that they seemed influential. He said, what they are makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. It's not that Paul didn't respect the office of apostle in general, and it's not that Paul didn't respect these men in particular. He did respect them, but he did not esteem them more highly than he ought. He was not in awe of them as if they too were not sinners saved by grace. God does not show partiality, and moreover, God sees past external appearances to the heart. I think there are at least a couple of ways that we can apply what we see here. 
One way is regarding what we might call Christian celebrities, and the second way is regarding how we view each other. By Christian celebrities, I simply mean Christian leaders who are well-known and who have a large audience or a large following. These leaders may seem influential. They may be very gifted, and perhaps the Lord has used them in wonderful ways for which we can give thanks. But we must not venerate them as if they too are not wretched sinners who are saved by grace. Our goal is not to make much of them. We want to be people who are making much of Jesus rather than making much of any one man or one woman. I'm not saying it's bad for certain leaders to have wide influence. And I'm not saying it's wrong or bad for us to be influenced by Christian leaders who have widespread influence. But problems tend to follow when we hold someone in too high regard. For example, if we excuse or ignore someone's sin because of their giftedness or influence, then that is a problem. Far too many Christian leaders have been allowed to cause harm because people perceived them to be gifted and influential and therefore showed them partiality by failing to hold them accountable. We can be grateful and respectful without venerating or showing partiality. We can even do this with our historical heroes. Take Martin Luther, for example. Martin Luther was used by God and was profoundly gifted. But he was also a wretched sinner who said some really terrible things. Early on in his ministry, he spoke very favorably of the Jewish people, and he had a strong desire to see them saved. But as time went on and he did not see that happen, when he did not see the Jewish people come to faith in Christ, he became very angry with them. He became very angry with them because of their unbelief, and he said some terrible things about them and even advocated the destruction of their property. Now, some people will say, oh, well, he was just old and grumpy, and be dismissive and downplay the sin, which is showing partiality. We don't need to do this. We don't need to try to protect his reputation or character. We can call sin, sin, whether it's Martin Luther or a nobody. We don't need to show partiality. We don't need to venerate Martin Luther. We can say he's a wretched sinner just like you and me. The point is not to bash Martin Luther. The point is just to call it like it is. He's a wretched sinner. We're wretched sinners. Jesus is the only one who's not. Shai Lin produced a, an album for kids called Jesus Kids, and my kids enjoy listening to it. And one of the songs on that album is called Only Jesus. And the point of the song is that when you look at the heroes of the Bible, all of them fall short. None of them are good enough. It's only Jesus. In one, in one part of the song, he says, now, now, when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool, when we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. 
And later in the song, he says, if you notice when we read God's word today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. We don't need to show partiality by excusing, minimizing, downplaying people's sins. Instead, we focus on making much of Jesus and bringing glory to his name. We are wretched sinners. He is not. Secondly, we can apply this in how we relate to each other. God shows no partiality, and we are not to show partiality. Grant Osborne notes that partiality is accepting or judging according to face and showing favoritism. It's rendering judgments based on external factors and showing favoritism accordingly. In his letter, James warned against showing partiality in the church. In James 2, 1-4, we read, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes, also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then in verses 8 and 9, he went on to say, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God is not impressed by the things that impress us. Showing partiality to the wealthy is the primary example we see in James, but it is not the only reason we might show partiality. In Galatians 2, the emphasis was on those who seemed influential. We might be impressed with someone's wealth. We might be impressed by their skills. We might be impressed by their knowledge. We might be impressed by their influence. We might be impressed by their success. We might even be impressed by their spiritual gifts. But God is not impressed. God loves us more than we can imagine. But he's not impressed by us. We are all sinners. We are all wretched sinners saved by grace. We are all dearly loved by our Heavenly Father, more than we can imagine. And we are all incredibly valuable and important to Him. Every member of Christ's body is an important and precious member in the eyes of Jesus. And therefore, we need to have the eyes of Jesus recognizing the value and the importance of every member and reject any form of partiality. We are wrong to compare ourselves to one another as if we are more or less important than others. In Romans 12.10, we read, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We are called to love one another. We are called to show honor to one another. And we are called to do so without showing partiality. We don't show love and honor based on external factors and appearances. We show love and honor without partiality to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Paul respected the apostles, but was not impressed with their influence. They added nothing to the gospel message he proclaimed, but they affirmed his message as well as his mission. The Jerusalem apostles, and Peter in particular, were called to preach the gospel to an audience primarily made up of Jews. Paul, on the other hand, was called to preach the gospel to an audience primarily made up of non-Jewish people or Gentiles. The contexts of their ministry were different, but the gospel message they proclaimed was the same. Therefore, Peter, James, and John gave Paul the right hand of fellowship and encouraged him to go to the Gentile mission field, only asking that he remember the poor, which he was eager to do. And when you read through the book of Acts and his New Testament letters, you read that he was faithful to take offerings from churches that were in strong financial positions in order to bring gifts to churches that were poor. He cared about the poor. Caring for the poor is important to the church because it is important to Jesus. As the body of Christ, we care for the poor as he cares for the poor. I'm grateful for the way that this church family practices this. We're careful about how we do this. We don't like to shout it from the rooftop, call a lot of attention to it so that we can pat ourselves on the back. But there are wonderful examples of generosity within our body. I'm grateful for the way that many members have given generously to our benevolence fund. And I'm so grateful for the way that those funds have been distributed to help people in need. I'm grateful for the ministries that we've been able to partner with in our own community that help out people who are poor or are in financially difficult situations. I'm so grateful for the individual examples I've seen of people just giving of their resources to help other people in need. I'm incredibly grateful for the ways that I've seen this church family practice this. And I hope and pray that we will continue to grow in this way. So the apostles were in agreement and they partnered together. The mission to make disciples of all nations would move forward with no apostles affirming the false teaching that Gentile converts had to live like Jews. They had unity in the gospel and diversity in mission. What we see here provides a framework for us both within our church and for the ministries we partner with. As a church family, we partner together to do the work of the ministry. And we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, can partner together in the context of our local church to carry out the work of the ministry, to make disciples, to do the work of evangelism because we are united in the gospel, because we agree on the gospel. And we are able to partner together to make disciples, to teach to evangelize, to build up the church because of that unity, because of that agreement. The agreement in the gospel is foundational to who we are as a church, and it is absolutely foundational to the work that we do together as a church body. We are also eager to partner with other churches and ministries with whom we are united in the gospel. We partner together so that we will see the gospel advance in our community as well as in a wide variety of contexts in our state, our country, and around the world. We know that the work of the ministry will look different in different contexts, but the gospel message we proclaim will be the same. I think about Kevin and Alina Beach who are doing ministry in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I'm so grateful for our partnership with them. And I know that the context, their ministry and their context will look differently than our ministry here. And that's totally fine because the gospel they proclaim is the same gospel we proclaim. 
And they are having the joy of seeing people come to faith in Christ. They are having the joy of baptizing new believers in the life of their church. And those who are believing the gospel and being saved are believing the same gospel that people here in our community. It's the same gospel being believed by people here in our own community. The contexts are different. The ministry will look a little different. But the gospel being proclaimed is the same. It doesn't matter if it's Virgil Brown in Portland, Oregon, or Josh Richardson up in Eagle River, Alaska, or Multiplication Network Ministries, which is training uh, church planters all over the world, or our three-strand network here locally that partners together to see the gospel advance in the Puget Sound, all these different partnerships. The ministry will look different, but we are all in agreement on the gospel. And because we have agreement on the gospel, we can work together to preserve the gospel and advance the gospel. And it is our joy to do that here in our own community, as well as to partner with others who are doing the same work around the world. Paul, Peter, James, and John agreed on the gospel and worked together to preserve and advance the gospel. Once again, we see the unity of the message that was proclaimed throughout the New Testament by Jesus and all his apostles. This is important because this is something that is critiqued. I heard someone recently say, James and Paul hated each other. And his point was that they preached different messages. There was contradictions. And people will say that, oh, the apostles got the message wrong, or the apostles didn't even agree with each other. But that is completely false. When you understand the New Testament, when you study and understand the New Testament, you will see that they were unified. John Stott explains, the apostles of Jesus Christ do not contradict one another in the New Testament. Certainly, there are differences in style between them because their inspiration did not obliterate their individual personality. There are also differences of emphasis because they were called to different spheres and preached or wrote to different audiences. Consequently, they stressed different aspects of the gospel. For example, Paul was writing against legalists and James against antinomians. But they complement one another. There is only one gospel, the apostolic faith, a recognizable body of doctrine taught by the apostles of Jesus Christ and preserved for us in the New Testament. Paul is at pains in this passage to show that he was in full agreement with the Jerusalem apostles and they with him. Paul wanted to make clear that he received the gospel independently of the Jerusalem apostles. At the same time, they were in full agreement as to the gospel message. As a church family, we agree on the one true gospel. And because we agree on the one true gospel, we work together to preserve the gospel and advance the gospel. How do we do this? Well, first, it's important for us to grow in our understanding of the gospel. The gospel is deeper and richer than we can imagine. We never want to assume that we've got the gospel down. We've got it. I go to the basic facts of the gospel. I need to move on to other things. We don't want to have that attitude and that mindset. We want to grow in our understanding of the gospel, plumbing its depths, understanding all the wonderful and glorious benefits that there are for us in the gospel. I want to encourage you to take time to grow in your understanding of the gospel. Never, never think that you have arrived. Don't make that mistake. You'll be missing out if you do. 
Instead, take time to reflect on the gospel, to better understand the gospel, to grow deeper in the gospel. We have resources to help you do this. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we have this little, this little pamphlet here, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. You can take one of those. Or there's a fuller treatment, uh, his book, What is the Gospel. Take that, read it. Or this book, you can buy in our bookstore downstairs, A Gospel Primer for Christians, Learning to See the Glories of God's Love. This is a wonderful little resource you can buy in our bookstore downstairs that helps you to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the gospel. We agree on the gospel. And to help our agreement on the gospel, we want to continually grow in our understanding and knowledge of the gospel. And as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel, we work together to preserve the gospel. And we do so in relationships. We work to preserve the gospel in the context of relationships. Grow in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Talk about your lives. Be honest about your doubts. We all have doubts. Talk about difficult circumstances you're going through in your life and try to understand how you can apply the gospel to your particular circumstance or situation. Whatever you're going through, think, what does the gospel say? How do I apply this to my life? And what's work together to do so? Let's help each other grow in the gospel. Let's help each other apply the gospel. In so doing, we will preserve the gospel. And we work together to advance the gospel. We can work together to advance the gospel through prayer. Donna Reed was mentioning to me this morning that she's been using the prayer guide, the Who's Your One Prayer Guide, that focuses on praying for one person in your life who's not a Christian. We can pray together for non-Christians whom God has placed in our life. We can pray that they will come to know Christ. We can look for opportunities to share the gospel. Perhaps there's someone in your life who's not a Christian who will be willing to meet with you to study the gospel. Is there someone who would meet with you to study the gospel? Think about that. Perhaps there's someone you can invite to join us on Sunday morning so they can hear the gospel as well. How can we work together to advance the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let's think about this. Let's be intentional about this. God has graciously revealed the truth of the gospel to us, and he has granted us unity in our agreement on the gospel, and he calls us to work together to preserve the gospel and to advance the gospel. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word today we see how the apostles agreed in the gospel and worked together to preserve and advance the gospel. And we pray that we would apply this to our own hearts, our own lives, our own church family. We pray, Lord, that we will be a people who agree on the gospel. And we pray that you will use us to help preserve the gospel and advance the gospel. We humbly ask that you will do this work in and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.